You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. Happy 2020. Some call it a new decade even. Not sure where you stand on that. <laughs> um, and I congratulate you for being here because the flu is going around. And half of our family is not here. And uh, the emergency rooms are full. So if you would, though, I would invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture from our text in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Verses 36 through 50, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, one of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You may be seated. I'd like to begin 
by asking a hypothetical question. If for one moment, at one time in your life, you could hear the audible voice of God, what would you want to hear from God? Perhaps you're going through a season of adversity and unspeakable uncertainty in your life, and you just simply want to hear the words from God, I'm in control, I've got this. Or you struggle with doubts about the assurance of your own standing with God and the assurance of your own forgiveness, and you, you simply just want to hear from God, I love you, my child. Martin Luther, one of my heroes and the, the great reformer, struggled with this question and with assurance specifically and with this idea of forgiveness. As a young Catholic monk, he saw Christ sometimes as an angry judge who came to him with a sword. And he said, if I could know that God were not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. And here in the text, we hear the words of the God-man audibly to the sinful woman, your sins are forgiven. Something Luther longed to hear as a young Catholic monk. And something that is certainly not new in the pages of Scripture. In fact, if you remember, if you're familiar with the account of Isaiah and his calling as a prophet, in Isaiah chapter 6, in the aftermath of the death of King Uzziah, Isaiah goes into the temple to pray, and he has a vision of a holy, holy, holy God. And it leaves him utterly devastated spiritually. And he, he says these words in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. But a gracious God and a holy God does not leave Isaiah there in the dust, but purges his lips with burning tongues, and the holy God of the universe says these words to Isaiah audibly. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins are forgiven. Even Luke himself, earlier in his gospel, records the story of the paralytic who was lowered from the roof because of the massive crowds, to get to Jesus as he speaks. And Jesus utters these words to the paralytic. Friend, your sins are forgiven. To which the scribes and the Pharisees responded with their typical and predictable murmurings. Who is this that, that speaks blasphemies? Only God can forgive sins. To which Jesus responded, which is easier for me to say to this paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk, or for, to forgive your sins? And Jesus proceeded to heal the paralytic, and he arose. 
Earlier in the Old Testament, back to the Old Testament, we're reminded of the story of King David in the aftermath of his sin with Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51, we have perhaps the greatest confession of sin in all of Holy Writ. And the tone is set very early as David utters these words. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your great compassions, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And God did, in fact, cleanse the king, King David. And David would later teach us subsequent to this confession in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. David, in utter exuberance, says these words of blessing. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In Psalm 32, we see the language of imputation, of justification, of forgiveness, Reformation language. It is no wonder that some 1,500 years later, as St. Augustine lay on his deathbed, he had this particular psalm, Psalm 32, nailed to the wall so that he could meditate upon this psalm in the final hours of his own life. It was his favorite psalm. And it was his favorite psalm because Augustine said this, The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. Augustine knew that if a person does not realize their desperate, sinful condition, there is no hope for forgiveness. We must know the bad news before we feel the desperate need for good news. And in Psalm 130... Verse 3, the psalmist says that if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. Simply none. Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul later writes 6.23 in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And it was quoted earlier in Ephesians 2.1. We, without Christ, are dead in our sins and trespasses. That's the bad news. But there's always the next chapter of the story, the next verse, which says, but God, being rich in mercy. Notice in Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There is forgiveness this morning because of the cross work of Jesus Christ. And without the cross, there is no forgiveness. Jesus was born to die. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died Once for all, the just for the unjust, 
that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel. And the gospel simply means good news. And it is good news that we need every single day. And Tim Keller has written on this and helps us here. He says that the gospel isn't simply the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A through Z. The gospel doesn't just ignite the Christian life. It is the fuel that keeps Christians going every day. Once God rescues sinners, his plan isn't to steer them beyond the gospel, but to move them more deeply into the gospel. And Luke here in this passage in chapter 7 takes us deeply into the gospel. And he begins with a picture And Luke is good at painting pictures throughout the Gospel of Luke. For instance, Luke intends to make a distinction between those who think they are righteous through their religious status and those who are on the outside looking in who know they are not righteous. For instance, in Luke 15, he makes the comparison of an elder brother and the younger prodigal brother. In Luke chapter 18, he makes the distinction between the Pharisee thanking God how great he is in the temple and the tax gatherer beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so he begins with this picture in chapter 7, verses 36 through 39. Then he gives us a parable in verses 40 through 47, and he climaxes the story with a pronouncement in 48 through 50 of chapter 7. So let's begin with the picture. We say it's a picture because in verses 36 through 39, there really isn't any dialogue. But there are three main characters, Jesus Christ himself, and then two debtors in the story. And a Obviously, supporting actors and actresses in the background as many gather at this dinner party. So we come to verse 36, and we read, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So we ask the question, what is a Pharisee? The Pharisees were the conservative wing of the Jews, And they demanded strict adherence to the Mosaic law and every minute detail handed down by various rabbis through the centuries. The most famous of all Pharisees was the Apostle Paul. They were often, if you are familiar with the gospel accounts, excoriated by Christ himself for their religious hypocrisy and their emphasis upon external religion as opposed to religion from the heart. Which begs the question then, why would Simon the Pharisee invite Jesus to his house? And my answer would be, it was not uncommon to invite rabbis, and Jesus, as a rabbi, was gaining great fame at this time. And perhaps it enhanced Simon's stature. Certainly from the text, Simon was open to the thought that Jesus might, in fact, be a prophet. However, as we learn from the text, 
Simon failed to honor customary norms such as the washing of feet and the kissing of guests. And therefore, we can conclude that his spiritual interest in Jesus was not the same as, for instance, Nicodemus, another Pharisee, who talked to Jesus at night. And Jesus talked to him about the new birth in John chapter 3. But what is happening here? This is more like a block party as opposed to a private dinner. In fact, they would gather and recline at the table, and the feet would often trail out away from the table as they gathered, which explains how the woman had easy access to Jesus' feet. John MacArthur, the commentator, writes, Since roads were either dusty or muddy, it was prudent to keep the guest's feet as far away from the table as possible. Lying down, leaning on one's elbow was both a sanitary and a comfortable position for the prolonged conversation that accompanied such a meal. It was not uncommon to invite a visiting rabbi to a Sabbath meal or a special banquet. Given those present, the opportunity to discuss theological, cultural, and social issues with him. What was uncommon was for this sinful woman, and that's friendly in the text because she was a woman of the street given to promiscuity, for her to suddenly show up was uncommon. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. The word there, behold, is strong in the Greek. It emphasizes that something shocking is about to happen. This woman is not identified. She's given no name, but she's simply designated by her past. This woman has a past. You and I have a past. And hers was defined by sexual promiscuity and prostitution. So then what happened and why did this woman suddenly show up in the face of of scorns and, and the intimidation of the religious crowd present? We can deduce with confidence that this woman was in fact already converted to Christ. Luke records the fact that Jesus had already spoken to many crowds of people. And whether directly or indirectly, this woman had an encounter with Christ and heard his healing words of the gospel. Her purpose was to come to this block party and give an expression of gratitude to Christ for what he had done for It was not uncommon for women in that day to wear vials of perfume around the neck. In this case, it is an alabaster, which is an expensive marble from Egypt. She's bringing the good stuff. And one can speculate that she probably planned this for days, if not weeks. And it was a courageous act. It was a a risky act. And most certainly... 
The perfume was planned, but the tears were not. Look at verse 38 as we see the emotional dam burst. And standing behind him, Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them away with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Commentator William Hendrickson provides some good insight as to what is actually happening here. He writes, As she stands there, she hesitates. In fact, she is overcome by emotion. Overwhelming sorrow for past sin is mingled with a profound gratitude for the present sense of forgiveness. Her heart is filled to overflowing with love and reverence for the one who has opened her eyes and has brought about a radical change in her life. She bursts into tears. This heart water, as Luther calls it, drops down on the feet of Jesus. Impulsively, she does what in those days no woman was supposed to do in public. She loosens her tresses. Then bending down with her hair thus let down, she, while continually weeping, keeps on wiping Jesus' feet, kissing them and pouring perfume on them. That word kiss in the Greek is a strong word. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 15 as the prodigal son returns to his father and the father greets him in the street and embraces his son and kisses his son. This woman clearly treasured Christ. Reminds me of the words of Christ in Matthew 6, 21. For where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And she went at, with great risk and great resources to show her gratitude for the forgiveness that Christ had given her. Notice now, though, in the verse 39, the contempt of Simon the Pharisee. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In Simon's view, if Jesus were a true prophet, he would push her away from the table and send her back to the life which she came from. There's nothing erotic here. Many a man had violated this woman, and yet she trusts in Jesus. And Jesus does not push her away. But who do we push away? What individual or group is not invited to your table, to your dinner party? Philip Ryken, the commentator, writes these words. He says, one way to test our grasp of God's grace is to see how we respond to people we think of as sinners, what we say about them, how we treat them, and what we do or fail to do to touch their lives with the love of Jesus Christ indicates our true understanding of God 
and his grace. The love of Christ is to govern our response to the girl at school who has a reputation for sleeping around, to the homeless man addicted to crack cocaine, to the openly gay couple in our apartment building, to the inmate with the violent record, or the family member who scorns the gospel. We are called to an embracing love that shuns evil without shunning sinners. When we live with this kind of love, it has the power to change people's lives, not just the lives of others, but also our own. And Jesus was, in fact, more than a prophet. He has the power to forgive sins. And he not only knows who this woman is, Simon will also know that Jesus knows who Simon is. Indeed, Jesus knows who you and I are. Look at Luke chapter 7, verses 40 through 42. Jesus is about to do surgery on Simon's soul with a question and then a rebuke. And he uses a parable to make the point. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Stop right there. 500 denarii was equivalent to one and a half years of wages. 50 was more like two months of wages. And the point is that both had a debt that they could not pay. And here, in, it's used in a business sense, the money lender forgave them. Paul uses it in his own writings. For instance, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, in a theological sense where God graciously cancels the debt of sinners and forgives the debt of sinners. Jesus Ask Simon this soul-penetrating question in verse 42 through, and then, in a sense, answers it for him in the following verses. Look at 42b through 47. Now, which of them will love him more, Jesus says to Simon. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. The contrasts are just powerful. In essence, Jesus is saying to Simon, she understands you don't. She washes you don't. She anoints 
you don't. She knows that she is sick and needs a physician. You think you are well. She is forgiven. Simon, you need forgiveness. That phrase, has been forgiven, is in the perfect tense, which has the idea of past action with present results. As we stated earlier, she came to this dinner party converted and forgiven. She's not forgiven because of the love she shows Christ. She loves because she is forgiven. And the degree to which you and I understand the depths of our sinfulness and are amazed by the grace of God in forgiveness is the degree that we respond with gratitude, much like the woman. She loves because she is forgiven. And she loves because she understands that she was once guilty before God, was transformed by his gracious forgiveness, and in gratitude is pouring out her affections to Christ in absolute, breathtaking adoration. Throughout the ages, God has taken the greatest of sinners and made them the greatest of saints. St. Augustine, another one of my heroes, he lived between 354 A.D. and 430 A.D. and was a crucial theologian at a pivotal time in church history. But before he became a spokesperson for God, much like the woman in the text, Augustine lived a life of sexual promiscuity. He had a mistress for 10 years, a child out of wedlock, and was radically converted. And I want to read some words from Augustine's own mind in his great classic word call, work called The Confessions of St. Augustine. He said this, in recollection and reflecting on those years prior to him finding radical forgiveness in Christ. During those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You, God, drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. And for the woman in the text, God was in fact her light, her wealth, and salvation. Look at verse 48, the pronouncement. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. So we ask the question, why did Jesus 
have to say this if she has already forgiven. He's saying it for two audiences here. He's saying it for Simon and the crowds of people who have looked upon her with scorn. And he's saying, this woman belongs to me. She is mine. She is forgiven. And you need the same forgiveness that she has. But there's also a sense that you and I both need to keep hearing this time and time again. And as we gather and celebrate the Lord's table here in a moment, we hear the words of Jesus himself say, this is the blood of my covenant, covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Through sacrament and word, we need to hear it again and again. Notice the response again, the predictable response of the religious crowd present. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? It is the one who healed the lepers, who healed the blind, who cast out demons, who raised the dead, and who promised that if you destroy his temple and in three days he will raise it again. It is God. Jesus, the God-man, is able to forgive sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Have your sins been forgiven through faith in Christ? And if so, how does that manifest itself in gratitude and love? Paul says in Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not by works, not by love, but on the basis of faith, we receive his grace. John Newton is a famous hymn writer. And he wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. It's a hymn of gratitude for sins forgiven. Now, he was heavily involved in the slave trade, was, but was dramatically converted to Christ. And that became the impetus for this great hymn, Amazing Grace. And during the writing of the hymn, Newton wrote these words of reflection that I think many of you and, and I can identify with. So much forgiven. So little, little love for Christ. So many mercies. So few returns. Such great privileges and a life so sadly below them. You and I cannot necessarily physically touch Jesus or kiss him or anoint him with oil as the woman did. But you and I can sing a song of praise or speak words of affection to Christ in prayer. We can tell him how sorry we are for the many sins that we do commit. And we can reach out to others who need to be touched by the forgiveness he offers. May God help us to be amazed by his grace. He who is forgiven much loves much. Amen.